Um, hi, this is Dr. Pajari, host of The Prognosis, which is a palliative podcast, and um, I'm very happy to uh, have two wonderful guests here today. Uh, my first guest is Dana Bingham. Uh, did you want to introduce a little bit about yourself? And then, um, I'm Dana, and I am a hospice nurse. I've been a nurse since 92. I started with Florence Nightingale. Back in the day, um, hospice is my passion now. It has been for several years, and that's it. And my other guest is Teresa Williams. And go ahead and introduce a little of yourself, too. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, Teresa Williams, and uh, uh, have never been associated with hospice. Didn't think uh, I would ever need hospice until this year, but... Uh, uh, lived in Marietta, Georgia with my husband, um, who fell ill that we'll talk about. But uh, I'm an executive assistant for a large corporation. Um, I've lived in Georgia for many years, and this is my home. So uh, thank you for having me. Thank you for being here, both of you. Um, wanted to just have an open conversation today, which is really the focus of this podcast, a very open conversation about the hospice experience um, so we'll start with you, Teresa. Tell me a little bit, it was your husband, mm -hmm. um, and tell me a little bit about um, being diagnosed first um, and going through some treatments for sure. illness. Uh, so, so Lane was uh, diagnosed with colon cancer uh, 10 years ago and was able to have that successfully resected. Uh, went through six minutes of chemo fairly easily now that I look back on it, um, and was cancer-free for about 10 years. And then a couple years ago, um, had uh, something in, inside the soft tissue of his mouth come up, had to have that um, removed, so that was head and neck cancer. Um, which then moved to the lung. We had that radiated successfully. Unfortunately, had already moved to the, the other lung. Um, tried to have that radiated, and then uh, it had spread. And so we went the chemo route for six months. And after six months of, of different um, combinations of, of chemotherapy, uh, decided that uh, we would not go forward with that it was not working and had spread beyond that so it was stage four when we started chemo and probably bought him an extra you know six months maybe mm -hmm. two months maybe but um, after that then we decided to um, quit having therapy and that's when they introduced us to hospice. Teresa, tell me a little bit, um, one of the important things is that that progression through illness of figuring out over time that um, things aren't working. Mm -hmm. um, how was that for your husband? You know, was that a kind of a slow process or was it a sudden process that, you know, he woke up one day or how did he come to the realization that things weren't working like he wanted them to work? So certainly um, when you find out you have cancer, that's, that's never what you want to hear. And um, I almost think you're in shock in the beginning, um, and you're trying to find out as much information as you can from friends, from family, from your resources uh, that you have, but 
I think not knowing what your resources are uh, is is scary. Um, we felt like we had a really good team that took care of him, and so we were very trusting in the doctors that uh, that were treating him. Um, but still not understanding how many options we had. So uh, I had no idea there was a first line or a second line or a third line of chemotherapy and that if the first one doesn't work, we can move to the second one, although maybe your chances of survival go down. I thought there was only one combination. Um, and throwing immunotherapy in there, which was something that we had high hopes for, it didn't work for him. And so it seemed like with his progression, every time we tried to turn uh, a corner and try something new, uh, not that it backfired, but it didn't work. And so we'd get our, our hopes up and we'd, we'd, you know, really pray for, you know, some uh, movement forward. And then it wouldn't work. So we felt like we got bad news after bad news after bad news. And so uh, I think, unfortunately, uh, through the progression of, of the chemotherapy, you feel so bad. And watching your loved one um, just go through that uh, kind of deterioration of the way they feel is a very difficult thing to watch. Um, and then to find out that it's not working, it'd be one thing to go through it and have it work, right? We could we could push through it, we could muscle through it, power through it, whatever. It's gonna we're we're gonna be okay at the end of the day. But to go through all of that and then it not work, it's very disappointing. And um, so I think we we stumbled our way through it. We had a good team, and I felt like they supported us and gave us the best options. Um, but he was not the kind of person who wanted to try clinical trials or fly to you know another state or another country and try different things. That just wasn't who he was. Uh, and at some point, we accepted that and uh, and then had to to move forward with hospice and try to make the best of the time we had left. Mm -hmm. So a, a progressive decision mm -hmm. over time and mm -hmm. recognizing. Do you think when you came to that hospice point or when he came to that hospice point, he was fully ready for it? I think by then he was. We had had enough time to accept that that was going to be uh, the fate, and, uh, and so you have to get on board with it. You still, you still hope for as much time as, as they say, but um, he, he was given six months and he lived maybe two. So, um, you know, I was disappointed in that. Uh, really had plans for those last six months in terms of travel and family and friends and just reconnecting to those people that um, that he wanted to before the end of life. But uh, with the progression, I mean, the deterioration was very quick. And so uh, I'm thankful for the two months. But I feel like there's a very fine line and a point where you pray for them to live and then you pray for them to pass quickly because there's a there's a time where that quality of life starts to go down to the point where um you know there there are comfort measures that need to be put in place and by then you need to accept that it's interesting what you just said and, and you know this podcast is called the prognosis with reason because i feel that prognosis is a lot of times um overestimated or given to families in an unclear fashion was there some confusion about that it sounds like you had expectations for a longer time how did that impact you and him also well i uh it's uh it's difficult 
to uh, accept. Um, and I wonder if it would have been better. Did, did the oncologist know it was two months or three months and just say that to sort of give him the will to live and to push him forward? Or did the disease truly pro- progress so quickly that there was no choice? It was going to happen in, in that period of time. Um, I, I certainly wanted six months or more and was really hoping for more, but it became evident a few weeks in that that probably was not going to be the case. Mm -hmm. And not having gone through that before, you understand that because you see it and deal with it every day. But not having dealt with that before as a family, it was a difficult thing to watch Mm -hmm. and and to try to understand what's happening next, how to be prepared for that, and how to get the most out of today. Mm -hmm. That was the one thing I figured out that I couldn't worry about two weeks from now, couldn't worry about six months from now. I needed to be present in the moment today and make the best of today. It can really wreak havoc, I think, sometimes. Um, I think you handle it well. You know you've been handling things well, but it can really wreak havoc for a family if they're given kind of an overestimation Mm -hmm. of time. Dana, you want to speak to that? I mean, you've taken care of a lot of patients, and I think prognosis is a pretty big deal. And not gauging it correctly or overestimating can really cause some issues on the hospice side. What do you feel? I truly feel the same way because when we get there and um, and the patient's in distress or pain crisis or sometimes they're sitting up talking to you and smiling or and they greet you at the door. Um, it's difficult for them to accept that they're not going to have very long. And it's... My role, I think, a lot of times to sit down and have the discussion with them and and with the doctor, you know, also. But a lot of times they're given too much hope, a lot of times. And, but I try to make that time for them and let them know that they're supposed to uh, reach out and, and spend every minute of the time that they have, like you said, Mm -hmm. to make every day count. I think we, when we were told six months, um, basically the oncologist released us that day, and it was... It was rather abrupt, I think. We didn't expect that. Here we had been coming for two years off and on to go through whatever treatment was needed, and that was our family of support. Those were the doctors and nurses we trusted. Um, And then for her to say, um, you don't need to come back. It was a kind of a final message. And, you know, we were thinking like, do we need another doctor? Do we need, how do we get medication if needed? Well, hospice will take care of that. And so we were now turned over to a new team and have to go find a company and a group of people that we think are going to offer the very best care that we can get. And, and then we start down this new path of not understanding what to expect in terms of physical symptoms or, um, like you said, pain management or cognitive function, any of that. And it could be any and all of that. Um, and so it's very overwhelming to the family uh, 
as 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 you're given that message and you're transitioned from that care to palliative care. Yeah, that's care. actually a key point is with the transition, um, especially if you're giving that message, um, it, you know, and it's an overestimation or maybe sending someone off with that. It's kind of the last thing that they hear mm-hmm. and they fixate on. And it, it was, you know, that prior experience. And here you are going in having to reestablish a relationship mm-hmm. or new relationship with the whole new team, and uh, and that's where that's where it becomes a little difficult too. Coming in, if there has been uh, kind of an under or a kind of underappreciation of where things are, is coming in as hospice providers. I know that we have that quite often, where you come in and you have to um, talk very openly about prognosis in a way that maybe hasn't been talked about right. before. Um, tell me. Now, a little bit about the onboarding process for you with hospice, how that went. So the oncologist had, had recommended that we go ahead and reach out earlier rather than later. Um, I think experience uh, from her, her standpoint in suggesting that, you know, we're, we're on the fence, right? Do we really need it now? I mean, we got six months. Why would I need it right now? Um, but we did take her advice and go ahead and call and set up for hospice to come out. Um, our thought was you come in once every week or so, whatever's required. Um, you put some eyes on him. You know, you, you do the write-up. You take care of medication. Make sure he's, you know, in a good good state of mind and physically doing well. And then you're off and about and come back another week. Um, so we did that. And I th- I'm grateful for doing that, I think, Um when Dana came out and did the onboarding, she was very good about explaining how this is going to work, um, explaining some of the uh, medical tools that we might need, whether it's uh, seats for a shower or um, a hospital bed or a wheelchair or walker so that we have access to that. I wouldn't have known how to get that done. Um, and so she made that very easy. Um, I will say that, you know, sending the medication packet ahead of time and having that prepared in there, um, you sort of put it on the shelf or in the refrigerator and think, eh, maybe I won't need that for a while. But sure enough, there's going to come a day when you do and you're going to need it there. And you don't want to have to start that relationship at that point and then be uh, scrambling to catch up, if you will. You want to stay ahead of it just like pain you want to you want to keep the patient comfortable and so um, that that made us feel really good about getting in early and getting onboarded as soon as we could um, it wasn't our preference but it turned out to be the best decision we could make do you think his symptoms uh, and this could even be before with chemo and things do you think he was well managed from a symptom standpoint were things addressed um, symptoms become a very dominant part of hospice and I think people don't realize that either either um, there's perhaps a perception that uh, that things are going to be static for a good period mm-hmm. of time and actually it's quite the opposite where we get patients where we are actively managing dynamically managing day by day mm-hmm. do you feel like his symptoms were managed well and pretty okay or were there fluctuations or how was the symptom management all along so with lane it was interesting in the beginning he didn't have a lot of symptoms he wasn't on a Mm -hmm. lot of medication coming in and he wasn't in pain except for say a lower back issue that we weren't sure was cancer it could have been lack of muscle 
you know, core strength, uh, something like that, because you have to remember he's coming off of six months of chemo, so he's he's cumulative feeling worse and worse each week. So we were hoping uh, that we had a month or two where he'd start to feel better coming back off the chemo, um, and that's when we were planning our travel and planning to see friends and family, uh, while we because we knew at some point it would start to go the other direction. Um, so I think at first we didn't need a lot of pain medication. Uh, it turned out as as we got to the end, we did, but not I would think compared to some patients, not as much. Mm -hmm. So for him, he didn't have pain all over, um, and there were really not a lot of other symptoms that he had. So it was really just pain management for him and trying to figure out the right combination, the right uh, cadence uh, of, of what that was. So I think we managed it as well as we could. Um, and I'm grateful that he didn't have a lot of pain un until literally 48 hours maybe yeah. before he passed. Mm -hmm. So I'm grateful because it could have been months of, of managing that. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand, you know, the more pain man, uh, medicines you take, then you're losing that ability to communicate and have really good conversations that are so important mm -hmm. uh, at the end of life. There are things that uh, you, you need to say and things you need to know. And um, I, I'm really thankful I got the chance to have those conversations before the end. Mm -hmm. um, and make sure that family knew and got to come by when he was in a, a better state of mind and could really communicate well. Uh, but he he knew it was coming, but I don't think he knew it was that quick. Uh, I think at the very end he probably did, but I think he still had hope that it would uh, give him as much time mm -hmm. as as he you know as he wanted he more time he than he thought. Mm -hmm. Dana, did you want to say something on that? You were thinking about pain management and uh, symptom management in patients. Uh, yes. Um, you, I, the way I go in, and I, I start watching the patient from the time I get in there. I also send a video every time to the doctor, and that's my backup. But you can, you, he had a lot of neurological things going on mm -hmm. at the end which we all agree that we all thought maybe it had metastasized to the brain. But um, you, you, you watch the, the vital signs, you watch the expression, how much they've been awake, how much agitation's going on. And if you stay on top of it, you don't get behind, and they don't suffer. And there's a lot of people that don't believe in, they think morphine is going to, take them immediately mm -hmm. because that's that's what they they've been i mean every time you mention morphine and it's not an ugly word it really isn't mm -hmm. but you're right i will say I, that's exactly what i think uh i think they're about to be unconscious and you know cognitively go away someplace and that you won't be able to have a, a good conversation um you think they're sort of slipping into a coma in a way um, and, and they're not going to be available. Uh, and there's a lot of education that needs to be done there. Um, I think that's why there's such a need for something like this and also education that this is a niche specialty. And I say that a lot because 
Um, it's really about knowing different narcotics and how they work mm -hmm. and different forms that you can administer narcotics. And, um, you know, a lot of people just have an idea that it's morphine and morphine alone. But we've got a mm. lot. We've got I've a, learned that. <laughs> we've got a full armamentarium, uh, you know, full medicine chest, uh, you know, or medicine cabinet of medications to be able to medicate people effectively. And we use them. And then, as you saw, we can do anything from the most minute dosing to the most aggressive dosing. I think that that's one of the areas where a lot of people just don't even understand that. They don't have that knowledge. Agree. Um, and then they then they have a fear associated with it, and they're afraid to commit. And very much as Dana said, I think one of the real dangers is if you don't commit to medicating, that patient will suffer. Um, and a lot of times people don't necessarily recognize what the suffering is. They think that the patient is just doing okay, and actually there's an element of um, distressed breathing or uh, pain that's uncontrolled, certain other uh, elements, and that can be very, that can be tough. That can be a tough thing um, to come into. Um, so do you think he was well-managed from a pain and from a symptom standpoint? It sounds like overall you think that the management was, was good. Overall, I think, I think it was. Um, it was amazing to me that he never had pain in other parts of the body where we knew there was cancer. Mm -hmm. I guess I assumed that if, if I have cancer in the leg or the hip or the back, it's going to hurt mm -hmm. there. Mm -hmm. And for him, maybe maybe it did, but it only felt like it was coming from that lower back area. Mm -hmm. And so um, that seemed manageable with just the, I think, the lightest of 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 pain meds, con con considering what's on the spectrum of what could have been used. He didn't take a lot. I mean, he... He'd never had to take a lot of medicines in the past no. until the end. And I think he had been hurting for a little bit and was trying to shake it off. Yeah, and I think maybe he didn't share with us how bad he was in pain. I think, um, I think he had a high tolerance for pain. Yeah. I do as well. So, I, you know, I have the ability to, to endure a lot before, before I need something. Um, and I think he was that way as well. Um, uh, but... Other than that, there weren't a lot of symptoms until the very end, such as the distressed breathing. And, um, you know, he did have cancer on the lungs. So um, doing those breathing treatments three times a day, very helpful. And also taking the, the pills for secretions and whatnot. So I felt like he had a good arsenal of meds to take care of. Any, I don't feel like there was anything that ever came up that I wasn't able to call and get you to help with and, and quickly. Mm -hmm. um, we Luckily, we didn't need uh, anything from an emergency standpoint uh, because, again, you, you, you sort of had that well in order and, and we had that ready and available. Mm -hmm. And I think the way um, your organization works is, you know, being able to get something delivered quickly and or having the nurse come out quickly is a comfort to the family. Uh, me not having to worry about uh, if, if the situation changes and not being uh, educated on what to look for, what to be uh, ready for, I think was a good thing. So I think uh, you've done a really good job of that. And I think I think that's very helpful to the family in that case. Talk a little bit more about that. Actually, it's a, the, a big part of what we do also is, um, and I actually believe in this so much, is having upfront and continuous conversations mm -hmm. along the way 
um, just to let the family know, here, this is what I'm seeing. And, you know, and imparting that to a family mm-hmm. um, and, or the nurse doing that too. Uh, and I think it makes a big difference. Do you think that that helped you in this situation to gauge, you know, especially as we talked originally six months, mm-hmm. and then you're seeing someone is mm-hmm. rapidly declining and you're thinking, well, this isn't adding up. Does that help to have those conversations plugging in periodically and saying, hey, this is what's going on and here's the reality and here's how we manage it? Absolutely. Uh, I'm a sh- uh, kind of a straight talk, sh- straight shooter. I want to know the, the real deal. So um, I expect to have a, a, a conversation that includes tough you know, decisions and tough information to hear. And that's okay. That's the way I preferred it. I could see where there are families that absolutely don't want to, to have that conversation. But personally, it was very helpful for me. So we went from having conversations around, I think it's going to be months to weeks to weeks and days or days and hours. So um, that was very helpful for me. And also understanding the, the physical uh, things to look for as, as a patient starts to, to pass or transition was very helpful so that I wasn't caught off guard and I could help manage that from home because um, even though hospice is coming in a couple times a week to help bathe them and of course Dana's coming in as needed, could be daily, every couple of days, whatever's needed, the family's then left to take care of the patient the rest of the time. And so understanding what to look for and what what not to be afraid of and and what to do if something happens is very important. So I think the more you can educate a family on on what to expect, whether it's timing, whether it's uh, you're going to start to notice distress breathing, or if this happens, here's what we can do to um, take care of that, the better. Tell me a little bit, you know, I was just thinking when you were talking about family, how did your family, you're very very straightforward and and it's it's a very good quality so you know you can be spoken to and and you can ask the questions that are on your mind and you're right a lot of people uh struggle with that and that makes the process more difficult of confronting reality that's in front of you which you know that's tough um how did your family uh, you know loved ones around you do you feel like they understood or had a good idea of what was going on um, how did they deal with the process? So we don't have children, mm-hmm. and so uh, it's just the two of us uh, at home. Um, however, we do have a lot of family nearby, and everyone was very supportive, uh, had been following the progression of his disease over the, the you know time frame that we were looking at over a couple years, and uh, were all very supportive and ready to, to help step in if needed. Um, so there was there was no one that was um, fighting back or there's no drama, thank goodness. Uh, you know, everybody just showed love and concern and support and wanted to know uh, if they were needed, what, what they could do to help. So mm-hmm. uh, I'm very blessed and lucky that that was the case. And uh, Lane, you know, realized that and, and that's just the way that's just the way our family life is. 
Um, and so it worked out fine for us to have friends and family come in and help. I have neighbors and uh, other other friends that are basically family um, who would do anything for, for Lane or myself. So uh, we were very well supported and had a wide net of, of support as needed. So mm-hmm. that was very helpful. Did you feel you were supported? Hospice also does grief support. How mm-hmm. did you manage that aspect? Um, sometimes that's the... The one that we kind of shove down deep within and mm-hmm. get on to practical matters, and then it's still there in the background. How did you manage grief? So and are did, you still? Yeah, I did speak to uh, the chaplain, or I'm not sure mm-hmm. um, his title, um, and his staff, and they were they were very helpful. We just had a couple of conversations, um, and even someone came out and sat down. The social worker uh, from your organization, she was very helpful just to chat. Um, at that time, I'm still thinking I had six months, so uh, I was uh, very eager to connect with other people in the same situation Uh, I wanted to be able to ask what do I you know what should I expect to feel in terms of grief beforehand before during and after Uh, and I'm still looking for that support now um, that it's uh, after the fact Uh, but I think they were willing to connect me with other folks uh, other patients other families and I think that was uh, something that provided me some comfort and unfortunately with the progression of his disease we didn't get a chance to connect Uh, but I do think if 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 there is a chance to offer that it's very helpful Um, from a religious standpoint no matter what your religion um, and a a spiritual uh, connection but uh, just in uh, support uh, in general from that aspect of it. The families are going to be different and they're going to need different ways of of support with resources. And I think any way that you can help with that is is very much appreciated. Um, Unfortunately, I didn't get a chance to move forward with that, but I had plans to do that and to connect with another family or person that was going through the same thing that I was. Mm -hmm. I thought that would be very beneficial. Did you feel like you you did mention this? Did you feel like you had an opportunity with Lane to um, have quality conversations that gave you closure I think that's a big part of it, too, don't you think? A lot of families don't get closure um, for various reasons, and I think that's what we try to avoid mm-hmm. is trying to give people closure before that final um, death happens. Um, we we were able to give y'all a few more days mm-hmm. whenever the neurological thing mm-hmm. started. started, yeah. And I think... That you got, I think that helped you probably more than anything else. It did. Um, I felt like there were a couple of conversations around um, service and and uh, remains and things that he might want to have distributed to family and friends that I wasn't clear on. And I'm glad we had that conversation because. I thought we were on the same page, but we weren't on the same page mm-hmm. until we had that conversation. And so I actually did go down a different path um, for his service uh, than I originally thought. And I'm so thankful that I did. I feel uh, 100% confident that it was the right thing to do. And uh, I feel like he was really pleased with, with the service, uh, you know, in spirit. And um, having that conversation was was very beneficial. So it gave me the few extra days to. There's a, there's a there's a good and a bad with that. When he's feeling good, you hate to have those conversations that are kind of a downer, really, um, end of life conversation. But I think 
um, at that time we were so kind of on board with what was going to happen, it was an easier conversation to have. So very happy that we had that. Uh, and I was able to then execute on the things and make sure that, and I'm still doing that because uh, it's only been a couple weeks to make sure that, that his wants uh, are being executed the way he, that he wanted. Do you think he had a sense? Uh, I, I, I believe this personally from all of the patients I've taken care of. Do you think he had a sense that he was going to pass soon? Um, you know, I, I'd actually ask Dana that question. I I'm, think he I'm did. curious to, to your opinion on that. I think he did because, you know, there was a couple of times that I visited with him when you, you were not there. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if he was, like, reluctant to let you know that he was having the increased pain. And, um, but I think, I think he knew things were going a little bit too fast. I think you probably did too, but, but we did not have that conversation. Um, and, and that may have been just him protecting me. And I think at the end it, it was, I had, I had been there, um, uh, you know, night and day taking care of him 24 seven as needed with the help of, of the team. And I did have a caregiver come in a couple of days for a couple of weeks, tremendous value and and help and i am ever so thankful will you talk a little more about that that is sure. such a key point um with families they don't realize that they may need the help and mm -hmm. they don't realize things are going as rapidly as they are and i the, a lot of caregivers think i can do it i can handle this mm -hmm. i can take care and it's it's not easy oh and that would be me yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know i i handle a lot of things at the office and I, i'm able to juggle a mm -hmm. lot of different things and I thought I could do this as well. Um, I did start to realize as as he started to decline that um, there were things that I was going to need to be there for pretty much 24-7. And I, um, everybody was very uh, vocal about uh, uh, making sure I knew that I needed to take care of me and, and that I needed to make sure I was not going to wear myself down or, or burn myself out or get sick. And so, and to um, just be a wife, yes, instead of a caregiver, yes, and that's hard. It's hard to do everything, mm -hmm. um, but but I, I wouldn't have been anywhere else. That was the only place I would have been. But I'm still working full time, so just the balance of of working from home and also keeping one ear out to make sure, you know, he's not going to fall or he's not going. So I actually installed a. a, a a little ring camera in the room where he stayed so that I could watch him from my cell phone. So if I stepped outside to get the mail or postman came or whatever, um, I could make sure he wasn't trying to get up and because he wasn't stable and able to stand on his own uh, because he thinks he can still do certain things and the mind, you know, wants to do what it wants to do and yet physically he's not able to do that. But um, so I decided to bring in uh, a caregiver uh, a couple of days, one week, um, and that was really just to give myself a little bit of time to do some work, um, to run, you know, some errands and do some things for myself that I felt like I needed to do. Dentist appointment, things like that, mm -hmm. that you that you don't think about. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden, you're tied to the house, and you can't get gas, you can't get food. I mean. So there are a lot of things that you aren't thinking about where your lifestyle is now completely changed for this period of time. And so the caregiver was amazing. She came in. She knew what to do. She wasn't um, concerned with with any issues in taking care of a patient at that state. I was able to... Um, 
have some friends over and family and visit and get out and do a couple of things that I needed to do. And, and it was, it was amazing. I should, I should have, um, I should have probably done it a couple more days, but it gave me enough time to feel normal and also then feel energetic about, uh, taking care of him, you know, when I was there. So we only did it for two weeks. She was actually there the day he passed mm-hmm. and uh, was very helpful. I had stepped out to take a nap uh, because I had been up with him pretty much all night. And um, I had only been asleep, what, 30 minutes. She comes in, taps me on the shoulder and said, I think you need to get up and come back in. And when I got back, he was gone. So, you know, we see that too. Dana, you want to say something? We're both thinking the same thing, but... They don't want to do it in front of you. They, That's what I've heard. They really don't. I've read. I've yeah. read that a lot. Yeah. And they. And as soon as you, I mean, they just let go. As soon as if if you're distracted or if you're laying down, it, it they they let go. You know, we've seen that before when there's a close bond and it's tough for um, that that person. I think subconsciously, uh, the subconscious is still active in the dying process. Is my belief. And that um, the patient may still have that connection and have a sixth sense, so to speak, um, that, um, you know, there's proximity still and not wanting to hurt and then passing away in a moment where they can um, alleviate that. So, yeah. It, that was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I didn't feel the need to be there. It was certainly about him being comfortable and mm-hmm. feeling um, the right time to transition. Uh, but but it was an interesting process over the last couple of days in watching the physical changes and the mental changes, obviously all during a little bit more of pain management. So not having full conversations and not really understanding, um, you know, it, does he know what's going on? Does he not? Um, and, and at what point they do decide to let go and, and that it's okay to transition. Mm-hmm. Um, it was it was quite something to watch. Uh, not all good, but uh, not all bad. And, um, you know, I'm just forever thankful that I was able to be there with him, have him at home, which was very important to him, and be able to um, have that go peacefully, calmly, you know, uh, who, who could ask for anything better than that? You just said something I like a lot. It was quite something to watch. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that dying, and, and that's why I'd like to have these conversations, is I think that dying is quite something to watch. It is a fascinating and difficult process that we really need to understand more about, have discussions about, and, and a lot of what you mentioned is very key um, to getting that that knowledge. Um, like you said, kind of coming in more prepared. Mm-hmm. Um One aspect on caregiving, you know, sometimes people don't realize, and and Dana and I have talked about this before, is that caregiving can even be done medication-wise. You know, a lot of hospices choose to ask families to dose around the clock or continuously give medications, but it's nice when there are other options. So talk about that. I was going to say Lane had an infusion at the end of life, um, and that kind of took the caregiving a little bit out of your hands, in a sense, not having to worry about giving medications around the clock. Did you feel that or maybe not yes. so much? And that was really the last 24 hours, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit longer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I felt like that was helpful. I, I didn't have to worry about every four hours having a pill or uh, or making sure a patch is on or off, um, you know, 
it's overwhelming in and of itself, the whole process, but to try to make sure you're then dosing correctly when you're, you are the caregiver is something that you have to be concerned about. And so um, having that morphine drip at the end was, was helpful, and I think it kept him comfortable. I did have to give him a, an extra dose when I, when I thought he was agitated um, a couple of times, but it wasn't, it wasn't a lot. Mm-hmm. And so uh, that made things a lot easier, and, and he was comfortable, and that was the important part mm-hmm. at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and Dana, did, did you want to say something on that too? Um, it, he, he was agitated that really bad the mm-hmm. day before he died. Mm-hmm. I mean, mm-hmm. that's and that's when we started the drip, and and is that normal? I, I don't know agitation. Yes, and I think that that um, that's where a lot of uh, discussion needs to happen. Education needs to happen. Is that dying itself? The transitioning process actually can take on many. You know, it, there there are different forms it can take on, and agitation absolutely. And sometimes we need to really go quite strong with the medications mm-hmm. we use to try and get that to a calmer place. Um, that's why there was kind of a myth, uh, maybe perpetuated by films or whatnot, um, where people think you're going to be on your bed and just still talking mm-hmm. and still interactive. It's not like that. It's almost like a birthing process. Yeah. It's the reverse, right? It's a an, a going out process, but a very uh, powerful transformation. Mm-hmm. And some patients, depending on what they have for pathology and for disease states, they can be impacted in a pretty significant way, and there are things to actively manage as they're on their way on out, especially, as I said, giving them peace. I think people are not realizing it's really, you know, the patient requires that. But again, you have to also not mistake everything for a painful or a disruptive process. Um, to watch dying, to watch that process can be actually uh, quite a, like a fascinating mm-hmm. but a tough process not everything needs to be medicated aggressively. Um, there are things that you see that may not sound nice right. or may not look great, but are part of the process. And then there are things that are more difficult and do require some management. And I, th- I think, yeah. I think the interesting part is not knowing what to expect. Yeah. Um, you know, I, my mother had passed away in the hospital uh, 20 five years ago and in the ICU she's hooked up to all these machines and they can very specifically tell you the things that are about to happen you can watch the numbers start to drop systems start to shut down and so it was a very methodical process and not peaceful I mean you know the passing was peaceful but but you're surrounded by monitors and people and buzzers and you know it's just a very overwhelming place to to be um hospice on the on the other hand you're able to to have someone at home in mm-hmm. the comfort of where they are the most comfortable and are surrounded by friends and family and so that experience is completely different mm-hmm. than being in a hospital and so i'm very glad and lucky that we didn't have to have him in the hospital we could have him home and he wasn't connected to a lot of machines and he didn't have to do uh, a great deal of of things to 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 get him to the end and so i think that was a blessing i think uh watching that process i'll never forget it um i learned so much and and, but i was curious if if that's what tends to happen with every patient or like you said it sounds like there are different you know different 
pathology reports, and so some do handle that differently, last longer, require different medications, and, and then, of course, the passing could be completely different. There's a lot of variety in some ways to dying, and then there's also a lot of similarity between cases, and knowing the difference is very crucial. Right, and um, that w- that's very yes. crucial to me. Yeah. I depended on you to tell me what what was similar. Mm-hmm. Like, I've seen this before. Mm-hmm. This is typically where we're at and what's going to, to be expected. That was so helpful. I cannot tell you how much that helped. Yeah. It was it was amazing for me. Again, straight shooter, I want to understand what I'm up against. And, and if I've got hours, if I've got days, if I've got weeks, that's fine. I can deal with that. But you knew that I, I wouldn't have known that. Mm-hmm. And not and thinking I've got six months and then all of a sudden weeks, um, completely different way to approach it. Mm-hmm. I appreciated very much that you, in being so straightforward, you had trust. Um, don't you think that's the key thing? It's a- having trust in, in who we are, um, that this is what we do day in, day out, um, and that we really do have an expertise that is not the average expertise. It's a different it is form different. of it's a different form of medicine. Mm-hmm. And you having that trust and saying, I believe that what they're saying is actually what's happening. We get a lot of pushback from mm-hmm. people saying this is not what's happening. Um, it's a form of denial, so I have compassion for it, but it makes it very, very hard. Um, and those are the cases often that don't have closure. Um, something gets pushed down or the grief gets stuck Mm -hmm. um, because they don't have that trust that what you're telling them is actually occurring and you're trying to put things in place quickly and make sure the closure is there and it doesn't happen. What do you think about that, Dana, too? They made it easy for me to take care of them. Yeah, yeah. They were receptive to everything. They they listened. And and it's like you said, there's people that... um, they're, they're, everybody's a full code. They want everything done, and we're, I'm watching it unfold just like with him. I knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. So did Dr. Bajari. We don't hide anything. We we try not to, and we're not going to sugarcoat anything either. We make it. We don't come in like a raging bull either. But um, people, a lot of people are scared to let go. I can understand that. And it, it's very difficult for us to take care of patients that are in that man- mentality. I'll say this is, it's, it's, if you, we don't come in there and over-medicate or anything like that. We try to keep the quality of life and the, the lucidity, you know, as long as we can. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of people that are in denial. It's, 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 it's sad and a lot of times the patient suffers from it. Yeah, it can be the patient, but interestingly, it can be the family. The patient may be on board, or uh, I think patients have a sense. That's why I was asking you about Lane, mm-hmm. but um, I, I think families can be very tough in all stages of grief or all stages of denial. Um, sometimes it's about control, too. Um, and I appreciated that you had trust. Absolutely. Uh- we were in territory that we had never been in and waters that we didn't know how to navigate. And um, we're going to have to trust you as a team to, to help us get through that. Uh, I can't imagine not doing that, but mm-hmm. I could see where there are other families that 
might be reluctant to uh, accept it. Um, I think we had had enough time to accept the diagnosis. Um, I think Lane sort of knew, uh, af, you know, from years of smoking that um, something might catch up with him. Uh, and those were choices he made early in life. That's the way he wanted to live his life. And um, and so he, he did that. And he lived it every step of the way that he, he wanted to. Um, you know, he certainly wasn't ready to go. He wanted to be here. There's so many things we wanted to do. He had only... Um, semi-retired from the Georgia State Golf Association and so we had quite a few tournaments and things that he still wanted to participate in but uh, um, I think a few months out he had sort of accepted that fate and um, really had an amazing um, outlook on it you know he didn't like it and he thought it just really stunk but um he also had a very strong faith in the way he was raised. His father was a, a Baptist minister, and so um, he had a very strong Christian faith, and that was uh, that was what got us through. So I can't imagine not having that. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. I appreciate it. Um, you know, I wanted you to talk a little more about him mm-hmm. as a person. I think any time we talk about dying and death, it comes down to a person, an individual, no matter where, how, um, and uh, they have beautiful qualities. So will you talk a little bit about him? You, you kind of alluded to some of it, but what kind of person was sure. he and, and uh, his legacy? That yeah. was the important thing. Amazing. Um, he grew up in South Georgia. Again, father was a Baptist minister, and they moved uh, from Moultrie to LaGrange, and he finished, uh, he finished high school in Moultrie, Georgia, and then went to college in LaGrange and played on the golf team there. Started playing golf really young, um, even worked at the Sunset Country Club down in Moultrie uh, when he was 15, 16 years old, and played a lot of golf, and uh, was fortunate enough to be... Um, uh, hired as the tournament director for Georgia State Golf Association, and that's a role that he fulfilled in one uh, aspect or another for 30 years, and so um, became an expert at the at the game and worked at the highest level for the USGA in conducting some of the qualifiers in the state of Georgia, as well as uh, doing events such as the U.S. Open, U.S. Amateur, U.S. Mid Amateur Committee, and um, uh, gave rules uh, seminars on the game um, and wrote articles for the Golf Georgia magazine. And and that was a legacy that we never expected for him to create. Um, one of the last things we were able to do is to create an endowment scholarship in his name and uh, wanted to do that uh, before he passed away. Usually it doesn't get uh, set up until after someone has, has passed, but um, with the folks at, at the GSGA and the foundation, we decided to try to get that up and going before he passed. And uh, so for five months, we um, had had kept this a secret from him, which is crazy and amazing that, that somebody didn't uh, let the word out. But uh, our goal was to raise $50,000. And uh, when we finally announced it. It was right before he started to get sick. Um, uh, We had raised over $103,000. So we'll be able to probably give two scholarships instead of one Mm -hmm. to a deserving uh, uh, person. And so really looking forward to that. He was hoping to help 
you know, s select the final candidate, which will be done in a few weeks. And so, unfortunately, he didn't get a chance to do that. So, um, so I'll get a chance to do that, which is fantastic. But uh, just received a lot of accolades and awards. He's in the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame. He was inducted in 2016 for the work that he has done in the industry and the game and the and the that he's given back to the game so much. Um, and so just really blessed and, and amazed at, at what he was able to do. The, the places that we've been, the people we've seen, um, you know, game, the golf is a game where you make friends for life. And that's what he always said. Um, and that's an amazing legacy. He will be missed um, by so many. And uh, we're just all thankful that we had him in our life the, as long as we did. It just wasn't long enough. You know, I was just thinking uh, there's a, d a divine timing to some things, too, when you were saying it was just just in time that he could appreciate it still. It yeah, I, I appreciate those things. I think that we uh, we think there's a divine timing in a lot of things that we see. Um, and, you know, I really appreciate you coming and speaking with me and Dana also coming and speaking today on this. Um, what's your, your, you know, your next phase or chapter right now? You just working on you and sure. taking it slowly? Taking it slow, still work full-time. Mm -hmm. um, it's awfully quiet at home. Mm -hmm. uh, probably getting a pet again. <laughs> we had had a, a Datsun um, for 16 years that we had had to put down a few months before mm -hmm. um, Lane you know, was diagnosed uh, So last year. So um, it's, it's been a quiet time at home, but uh, doing some traveling, definitely connecting with friends and family. Uh, I've got a really good support system uh, and friends and family that are taking good care of me and making sure that I'm okay. Um, and, and I think I'm still a little bit in shock, to be honest. I feel like almost he's on a, a golf tournament trip and he just hasn't called and one day he'll show up. But uh, I know that's not the case. But um, so I'm just going to deal with it day by day, mm -hmm. and 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 I'm going to go through the grief. I'm not going to avoid it. I think uh, you could medicate through it. I'm not that way. Um, I think you need to experience because I think I'm going to learn something from it. I learned something from the whole process uh, that I'll take away. And I'd like to give back um, to the game of golf because it's been so good to us. Uh, but also, I wouldn't mind trying to figure out a way to help others that are in this same situation because in the beginning, it was scary and and I didn't know where to look for resources, someone to talk to, a, a support group. They just didn't seem to fit what I needed. And if there's a way that I can work with the organization and figure out a way to help others, I'd like to do that if I could. I think you're doing a good job with it. Just by speaking uh, today, you know, getting the word out on what your experience was uh, with I hope hospice. So. Yeah, Maybe. absolutely. If it can help anyone, absolutely, it's worth it. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, and Dana, is there anything else? I know you said this well. is our model. <laughs> this is our model. I mean, this is what we aspire every family to go through. We we and we want everybody to know that we're on the journey with them. It, they're not alone. Yeah, absolutely. And absolutely. I felt that. Yeah, absolutely. And it was very helpful. I, I, I can't imagine doing it alone. Uh, thank you so much for watching, and stay tuned for the next podcast. Um, more to come. Thank you.